like to invite you to turn with me to the 54th chapter of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 54. My dear old father used to have a story that he told uh, numerous times. Uh, One of those stories that uh, you hear in childhood and never forget about the farmer that took his young son out to the barn. And uh, he had a hammer and some nails, and he drove the nails into the side of the barn and then handed the hammer to his son and uh, asked him to draw the nails, which he could do. And then he said, uh, now draw out the holes, which, of course, he could not, uh, could not do. And uh, the point that he, was, that he wanted to make is that... Uh, Sin always uh, has consequences, and sometimes those consequences are ineradicable. There's really nothing that uh, we can do about the results. There are people that uh, have been promiscuous in their youth, and they discover that, they've, that they're HIV positive. And they may repent of their sin and know that they're fully forgiven, but they have to live with the consequences of that uh, sin. Or there are people that have been substance abusers, and uh, they've wrecked their health, and they have to live with uh, the harvest that they've sown. Or there are men and women who have made that terrible decision to abandon their families, and then things didn't work out, and they discover they can't go back. They'll never have an intact family again. They'll never know the joy of sitting under the Christmas tree with their grandchildren. They'll never know the happiness of growing old together with someone, and though they know they can be forgiven, they cannot go back. Uh, Robert Frost has a a wonderful little poem in one of his books entitled The Oven Bird, and there's a line in it that goes something like this. The uh, question that he framed in all but words is what to say about a diminished thing, and uh, that's the question, what to say about people that have diminished their lives. What comfort can we give to them? And I I would be foolish indeed not to believe that there are some of you sitting there this morning that look back on your life and you know that there are mistakes and sins and ethical corners that you've cut and things that uh, you've done that cannot be undone. And though you can be forgiven, how how do we live with the physical and emotional results of of those sins. This is a passage that deals with that uh, great subject. A wonderful text. I want to tell you something of the history of this uh, passage again. I, I think it's important to set it in its uh, original location and, and try to understand it the way the, the original recipients would have understood it in Isaiah's day. And then we'll talk about how it speaks to us today in the 20th century. Isaiah, as you know, was an 8th century man. Uh, By the time he wrote this particular text, uh, it was probably 720 B.C. Israel was enjoying a time of peace and prosperity and affluence. They'd gone through a a near disaster, as you know. The Assyrians, the Assyrian Empire had invaded uh, uh, invaded their country, had besieged the city of Jerusalem. To use Isaiah's colorful expression, the Euphrates flowed up to their neck, but God delivered them in a miraculous way. We, we talked about that, uh, that event. And uh, the Assyrian army was sent back in, 
back to Assyrian disgrace. But somehow God's people didn't get the message. They went on in disobedience. Isaiah talks about the moral perversion, the pride that existed. They turned everything upside down. Black was white, white was black. And became spiritually indifferent, had no room in their life, made no room in their life for God. And so uh, in the 6th century, latter part of the 6th century, early part of the 5th century, the Babylonians did exactly what the Assyrian Empire had done. They, they marched into Judah, besieged the city of Jerusalem. But this time there was no uh, deliverance. They breached the walls. They put the city to the torch. They sacked and burned the temple and just left behind a blackened shell. And as Jeremiah puts it, they deported all the people, all the people that were worthwhile to them and left only the bad figs, those that they felt were rotten to the core. And uh, the city lay in utter ruin. But uh, years later, these people could pick up this chapter, chapter 54, that Isaiah had written in the 8th century and find comfort for it because this chapter has to do with how you deal with a city that you've trashed. And it has to do with how you deal with a life that's been trashed. What do you do? How do you handle the consequences of the wild oats that uh, you've sown, the harvest of, of earlier wickedness? Now, we have to bear in mind that uh, this, uh, this whole chapter is a metaphor. It uses a series of illustrations, and our task uh, is to try to determine the significance of these uh, symbols. He begins in 54.1 by saying, Sing! Sing! And they would probably respond by saying, What in the world do we have to sing about? They would respond in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 137. We, we hung up our harps, put our harps on the willows. And when they say to us, Sing one of the songs of, of Yahweh, we, we, we can't. We can't sing. There's no joy in our heart. And yet Isaiah says to sing because I'm going to do something for your city. Now, the, the metaphor that he uses is that of a woman that's been divorced. That's a common theme in these final chapters of Isaiah. Remember chapter 50? And uh, the, Lord, the Lord's statement, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you because of your sins you were sold? Because of your transgressions, your mother was sent away. He's referring to Zion, which is the hill on which Jerusalem was located. And he uses those terms interchangeably. Jerusalem, he says, has become faithful. He's using the city by metonymy for the, for the people. He says, you were unfaithful to me, and so uh, I divorced you, he said. You went after other lovers, so I divorced you. Sent you off into exile. And uh, now, he says, you're, you're like a deserted, divorced woman. But Isaiah tells us that Zion is going to be restored back in uh, chapter 52, just before he introduces the suffering servant. Verse 9, burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm. And as we saw last week, he, 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 he laid bare his holy arm in this little fragile plant that grew up that became the servant who gave himself for our sin. Just a reminder again that we cannot out the grace of God. Where sin abounds, grace, Paul says, doth much more abound. 
It doesn't make any difference how far you've gone or how thoroughly you've, you've destroyed your life. God loves you, cares for you. There's forgiveness there. If we, if we face into our sin and repent of it, he puts it away, covers it up. He paid the, the ultimate price, as we saw last week. He went to hell to pay for our sin. But then there's this question of the, of the wreckage that we've left behind. How do we begin to rebuild? And that we have in chapter 54. He says, Sing, O barren woman. You who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who are never in labor. Because more are the sons of the desolate woman, he uses the word for desertion, the deserted woman, the wasted woman, than uh, the sons of one who has a husband. going to restore your children to you, he says. Now remember, we're talking about the city. You have to keep the symbol in mind. The symbol represents the people, but he has in mind the city of Jerusalem. And he refers to the children of the city. It's the population, the people that lived within the city. And uh, he says in verse 2, Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. He uses an illustration right out of their culture. Uh, still true today. If you go to Israel or any of the Arab countries that surround Israel, you'll find Bedouins out in the, out in the desert living in uh, tents and uh, you can determine the number of family units in the tent by counting the, the peaks. Because uh, in, a, in that culture, whenever a young person grows up and marries, they just enlarge the tent in order to contain that, uh, that family. And each family unit has its own little space to live within the, within the tent. And each peak represents a separate family unit. Sometimes it represents different wives, uh, but it's a separate, uh, separate unit. And he says, look, you're, you're going to have so many children, you're going to have to enlarge your tent to accommodate them. Now, that, that it may not speak to you with a great deal of force, uh, having a whole lot of children running around. You may be past that. But you have to put yourself in, in, in their shoes. For them, having many, many children was a sign of, uh, of God's enrichment, his enlargement. And so he first evokes an emotional response through the illustration, and then he explains the illustration. There's no question about what he means because in verse 3 he says, For, and that word almost always introduces an explanation, you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Jerusalem will become so overcrowded, your children will multiply to the, to the extent that they will overflow the walls of the city and they will spread throughout the breadth and width of the land of Palestine. Now, in, in Israel, you have, everything is oriented toward the east. That's where our word orient comes from. You, or, you orient yourself toward the orient. And uh, therefore, everything to the right is south, and everything to the north, uh, everything to the left is to the north. Now, what had happened during the time that Israel was in exile, during those 70 years, the Edomites had encroached from the south and the Samaria from the north, so that there wasn't much left of the Holy Land. God had promised Abraham that their, their land would extend from the Euphrates to the river of Egypt, and they weren't, the dimensions of the city were, of the country were not that large at all. They'd been cramped, pressed down into a very small area in which to live, but he says, you're going to expand to the north, the south, you're going to multiply your, your descendants, you're going to bless you, enrich you. Just a general statement of 
the good thing that God was going to do for these, these exiles. And you have to put yourself over in Babylon and, and understand the longing in their heart to get back to Jerusalem, to the city that they had ruined, and to begin to rebuild it. God says, you're not only going to rebuild it, but your descendants will spread throughout the width and the breadth of, of the land. And he says in verse 6, don't be afraid, you'll not suffer shame, don't fear disgrace, you'll not be humiliated. See, the, the problem with Israel was the guilt and the shame and the humiliation of what they had done. The responsibility for the destruction of the city lay squarely on their shoulders, as it does on ours. You know, we look back at our lives and, and there's no way that we can mitigate the, the uh, responsibility for our sin. We can't soften it. We know we're responsible. They knew what they had done. But Isaiah says, don't, don't be afraid. You'll not suffer shame. Don't fear disgrace. You'll not be humiliated. You'll forget the shame of, of your youth, the sin that caused the divorce. And remember no more the reproach of your widowhood, for your maker is your husband. Your creator is your spouse. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He's called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young, only to be rejected by God. Do you understand? It was God who rejected her and sent her into exile. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. It's contrasting here the brief moment in which she was exiled with the eternality of his commitment to her. The, the word that's translated surge in Hebrew is the word for a thunderclap. Something that's intense, but it's over. And uh, he says, there's no comparing the brief moment that you've been set aside to the continuity of my commitment, the eternality of my, of my promise to you. And he uses two words that are often used in the Old Testament to describe the relationship that God had with his people. One is, is the word for commitment. It's translated everlasting kindness here in the text twice, uh, back in verse uh, 8 and on in, uh, where is it? It's translated unfailing love in verse in verse 10 in my translation here. That's a word that throughout the ancient Near East was used to refer to covenant loyalty. When you drew up a contract, you swore kesed, they said. It's, that's fealty, commitment, see, fidelity to the, to the contract. You're not going to break the, uh, the provisions of the, of the contract. And God says, I'm going I'm to stick to my word. I'm going to keep my word. I'm not going to break my marriage vows anymore, thoroughly committed to the end of your days. And then secondly, he says, I'm going to have compassion on you. It's a word that's based on the Hebrew word for womb. has the idea of the deep emotional commitment and compassion and love and mercy that a mother has for her newborn born child. God says, I'm never going to forget you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm going to love you to the end. I'll never let you go no matter what you do or say or leave undone, I'll, I'll love you like you've never been loved before, you see. Now, who, who, of you, who of you women here would not want a husband like that who's utterly, totally faithful to you to the end, who will never be unfaithful to you and will never leave you no matter how, 
how uh, difficult you may be to live with and who will have compassion and will be tender, kind, loving uh, toward you, toward the very end. Uh, some of you may have seen the movie uh, regarding Henry. Uh, 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 Harrison Ford plays the part of this high-flying, high-priced uh, defense attorney uh, who, who uh, takes a lot of moral detours in his life and who cares nothing for his family. He's unfaithful to his wife and overlooks his children. And he gets, he gets shot inadvertently in a holdup. And uh, <clears throat> it changes his whole life. You know, he turns into a very loving, committed husband. And I was talking to uh, a woman uh, after the uh, after the movie, and she made the comment that uh, there are some wives that would probably want someone to shoot their husbands if uh, could guarantee that kind of change. Say, well, uh, there's something fairly hokey about that whole movie because shooting someone in the head doesn't bring about that kind of change, but. Uh, but God in someone does, and God himself is characterized by an eternal commitment. He never gives up on us, never. He'll never leave us, never forsake us. And he says, as for my people, I'll care for you. I'll have compassion upon you to the very end. And then what follows is a little discourse on the finality of that covenant, compares it to the covenant with Noah. To me, this is like the days of Noah. When I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth, so now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed. And here he ties his, the uh, measure of his commitment into the immutability of mountains and hills. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing, that's, there's that word, my commitment for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace removed, says the Lord who has compassion. On you. In the days of Noah, God promised that He would never again send a flood upon the earth, and He never has. Not a universal flood. And uh, what He's saying is, I said it once and I promised it, and I'm telling you now that this marriage contract that I'm making with you is forever. It's for good. You can count on it. A friend of mine, Jack Crabtree, when I married uh, him a number of years ago, uh, he, he said when we got to the part where he he was to pledge his allegiance to Jody. He looked at her and he said, Jody, I will never split. And uh, that's what God is saying to his people. I'll never split. Say, I'll never again leave you. That's the measure of God's love for his, for his people. It's tremendous assurance. Then he begins to uh, address the issue of the ruination of the, of the city. The city was trashed. And that, that, was, that was of deep concern. To the, to the people in, in Babylon. Verse 11. O afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted. I will, let me retranslate here slightly. I will set your stones, your turquoise stones in, in antimony. Antimony was a substance that was used to harden uh, cement. And it also used to harden metals like brass. Used it to make alloys. And uh, it was also used for eye uh, 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 shadow in those days. But basically, it was a hardening uh, substance. And what he's saying is these, uh, the walls of the city of, Be- of, of Jerusalem are going to be both beautiful because of the symbol of the stones, but also stable. Uh, they won't be breached again. So there's stability and, and beauty that's promised here. 
Your foundations I will set with uh, sapphires. Sapphires, of course, are those beautiful blue stones that uh, that uh, are so attractive. I'll make your battlements of rubies, red rubies. Your gates of sparkling jewels, a word for diamond, probably some kind of crystal uh, uh, appearing stone. And all your walls of precious stones. So it's symbolic, you see. That when you come back to rebuild your city, it says your city will be a thing of beauty. And those walls will be, will be strong, very strong walls. All your sons, he says, will be taught by the Lord, and great will be your children's peace. The son, following the symbol again, the sons are the sons of the mother, and the mother is the city, so the sons are the population of the city. The city will be beautiful, and the inhabitants of the city will be beautiful. They will all be taught of God. There won't be any unbelievers among them. They'll all belong to him. They'll have a special relationship to him. They'll be mentored and tutored by, uh, by God himself. He says, and uh, furthermore, in righteousness, it's the word for integrity. Your integrity as a, as a city and as a nation will be established. No one can question your right to exist. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it's the word uh, approximates our English word, pick a fight with you. If anyone picks a fight with you, it won't be me. I won't be, I'm not the one that's doing that. Uh, if uh, whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith. And he's referring here to the nations that he raised up to be the smiths or the blacksmiths to uh, hammer Israel on the anvil of life and make out of her what God intended her to be, the Assyrians and the, the Babylonians and the Persians who were the hammer that God used, the smiths that God used, to, to break them and then to make them into the people that he longed for them to be. But he says, it's not going to happen anymore. Uh, the one who fans coals into flames and forges a weapon fit for its work, I created all of these. It is I who created the destroyer to work havoc. It's the same thing that Zechariah says. God raised up a smith, Assyria, to, uh, to discipline Israel. And Assyria went too far, so God raised up Babylon, another smith, to punish Assyria. And Babylon went too far, and so God raised up Persia to, uh, to discipline the Babylonians. And these smiths, he said, I, I formed, but no weapon forged against you now will prevail. And you will refute every tongue that accuses you, every accusation that, that, uh, that you feel, uh, those, those terrible feelings of wrongdoing, the guilt that overwhelms you from time to time. He says, you will not hear those voices anymore. This is the heritage. This is the inheritance of the servants of the Lord. This is their vindication for me. In other words, this is what you have coming to you because you're, you're my children. You can expect this large and lavish inheritance. So um, looking back on this section, what was promised was... Uh, a new relationship with God, a new understanding of his character and, and his love, his compassion. Secondly, the city would, would have a beauty that she never had before. There would be a burgeoning population of godly people who know and, and, love, the God, and love God with all their heart and soul and mind. And finally, there would be peace and tranquility. And God says, this is, this is what I promised. Now, here you are over in Babylon and you're hearing all of this. And this is an incentive to go back and to rebuild your uh, your city. 
And they did go back. Many of them went back. Many of them stayed in Babylon. It was too comfortable there. There was too much affluence. The roots were too deep. But some of them were willing to leave Babylon and go back to the city under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. The story is told in the books of Ezra and, and Nehemiah. And they went back to the city and they began to rebuild it. And they put up its walls and they put up the temple. But it, it never achieved, Jerusalem never achieved the glory that she had had before. Never, historically. Uh, as a matter of fact, Haggai tells us that when, uh, when they rebuilt the temple, the people that had seen the original temple, Solomon's temple, wept. They broke down and cried because they were so ashamed of this, this very small uh, endeavor. And uh, Haggai says, don't worry, someday God's going to fill this house with glory. And it is true that Herod, the Herod of Jesus' day, did embellish and enlarge that temple and make it a glorious thing. But again, it never achieved the glory of Solomon's temple. That was one of the seven wonders, that was one of the wonders of the world back then. So we ask ourselves, in what sense is this prophecy fulfilled? Has it been fulfilled yet? Well, no, not, not completely. In part it has, but uh, not completely. Well, how can we understand it? Well, now, uh, let, let me, uh, if I had time, uh, actually this morning in the first service, I took too much time and bored everybody to death, so I'm not going to do that this time. Uh, if you want to know how to interpret the Old Testament, you have to look at the New Testament because the apostles are the divinely inspired uh, interpreters of the Old Testament. And when you come to Paul's writings in Galatians 4, he equates the city of Jerusalem uh, he makes a comparison between the earthly Jerusalem, which is the city that's located on, on Mount Zion. It's still there to this, to this day with uh, another Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem, a spiritual Jerusalem. Now, you see, that had always been true. Even in the Old Testament era, there was Jerusalem, the, the, just the people that lived in the city of Jerusalem. But there was a hardcore faith within Jerusalem that represented the true Zion, or the spiritual Israel, people who hungered and thirsted after, after God, people like David who were obsessed with knowing God. <clears throat> they were the true Israel, the spiritual Israel. And you come to the New Testament, there's still an earthly Jerusalem, and Paul alludes to it. He says they're, they're tied, tied up with law and law-keeping and trying to be good enough to please God. That's one religion, but he says there's another religion which, which is experienced by those that are in this hardcore faith, the spiritual Israel, the spiritual Jerusalem. And he clearly equates the spiritual Jerusalem with the Christians of that day. So that's us, you see. We are the new Jerusalem, the spiritual Jerusalem. New Testament also refers to the new Jerusalem as heaven. So it not only is a symbol, you know, the, the literal uh, element is the city of Jerusalem in the Old Testament, and the New Testament is the church both collectively and individually, we as individuals, as well as the body of Christ as a whole, but it also is symbolic of heaven. You have this picture of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21 coming down. It's an enormous city. Uh, if you put it down in the United States, uh, it would stretch from uh, here to New York City and, and in one dimension and from here to Houston, Texas in another dimension, and it would go 1,400 miles straight up into the air. And, and it's a symbol, you see, of the vast number of people that that have become a part of the of what what John calls in that in the book of Revelation the bride of Christ, the people of God, living with God forever, the dwelling place of God. Uh, Revelation says is now with man, and it's a picture of the people of God gathered around 
uh, our Lord throughout eternity. So the, the, the idea of Jerusalem is used in those various ways, the literal city, the church, and heaven. Now, I understand that, uh, you know, some of you have a problem with this, and I appreciate that. People ask me all the time, what's going to happen to Israel? Does Israel have a future on this earth? And I say, I honestly don't know. I really don't know. That's not clearly spelled out in the New Testament. I'm going to leave that up to God. I've become convinced that that sometimes God's will is too good to know. know, He he doesn't tell us everything because we couldn't, couldn't stand it. My task right now is not to sort all this out and try to unscrew the unscrutable. It's, uh, as, uh, as one of the prophets says, it's to seek justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. That's, that's our job. And we'll just leave what God is going to do with Israel up to him. I, I simply don't engage in that debate. I just say, I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, I have no idea what God is going to do with Israel, but I, but I know that his plans are good, whatever it is. But I also know that the New Testament takes these Old Testament passages and applies them directly to us. And so let's go back and look at this and see what it means in terms of, uh, uh, of our own understanding of the passage. What, what benefit can we, uh, can we derive from this uh, chapter? Well, he, he, he says to us, we can sing, we can sing. You look back on your life and you just see a, a trail of debris. It's ruin. And, and, and you know it's because of your sin. What, what in the world can you do with a, a body that's been wasted through substance abuse, uh, with a marriage that's been trashed, and, and you long now to have that relationship with your children that was lost. And they, they don't want anything to do with you. And I know these things are happening. I talk to you. I, you know, I hear the heartbreak, and I, I know the pain that you experience. And, and all of us have those things back there that cannot be undone, the irreparable marks of, of sin. And we know we can be forgiven. Oh, you know, as, as Paul puts it, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. There's that wonderful, ongoing grace of God that tells us that we cannot out the grace of God. He just keeps forgiving, keeps loving. He's committed to us. He's compassionate over us. If we will confess our sins, if we'll face into our sin and judge it and repent of it and put it away, he, he accepts us back. But how can we undo the consequences of sin? What can we do about that? Well, perhaps nothing. Perhaps nothing. Maybe uh, during this life you will have to live with the physical results, emotional results of your sin. It's going to be undone when our Lord comes back to take us or when we go to meet him. It's all going to be undone. Everything's going to be set right. You're going to be restored to the people that, uh, that you violated in various ways. Uh, and uh, we're going to enjoy with those that love our Lord Jesus eternal fellowship. And our bodies are going to be redeemed. But perhaps in this life, there, there is no undoing the damage that's done. But, but God promises something even better, something greater. And uh, that's what this passage spells out. The first thing, I believe, is a new, enlarged knowledge of God. I have discovered that people that have, that have, that have sinned greatly and are bearing the consequences of that sin 
have an understanding of the commitment and the compassion of God that others may not have. There's, there's nothing like suffering to bring us to the end of ourselves and teach us the comfort of God. As Paul puts it, he is the Father of mercy who comforts us in all of our distress. And there is a, I find in those that have gone through these terrible tragedies and, and they have sown their wild oats and they've experienced the harvest of them that there's a deeper understanding of God's compassion and, and love than, uh, than, they, than most of us have that haven't gone through some of these, uh, these experiences. Uh, Job, at the end of his life, though his, his uh, distress was not the result of sin, said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Now I see you. That's what suffering does. It enables you to see God in a fresh way. And it's my experience that those that have gone through these uh, terrible ordeals in their life are people that, that know God in his richness. They understand his character better than others. And uh, there's, a, there's a depth of fellowship and intimacy there that uh, continues. Uh, remember David? David? David's ways were very harsh before he came to know God's forgiveness. When Nathan came to him with that trumped-up story about the sheep, uh, David wanted to uh, take the life of the person that had done that terrible thing, and then he discovered that he was the one that Nathan was talking about. And in Psalm uh, 51, in that penitential psalm of David's, when he confesses his sin, he says, uh, now I want to teach you about God's ways. Because you see, before, David's ways had been very harsh. Not at all understanding of people who failed and sinned. But once he had gone through that experience, he could teach people about God's ways, his wonderful grace, his ongoing forgiveness, his compassion, the fact that he waits to show mercy. That's the first thing, a new and enlarged vision of God, a deeper and more intimate relationship with him. And secondly, there is, I discover, a, a strength and a beauty in the lives of those that uh, uh, that have sinned uh, in in these tragic uh, ways, and whose lives whose lives and bodies now bear the marks of that of that sin, there is a tenderness about them, a humility, a softness of of speech, an understanding uh, uh, heart toward people that fail and people that sin. They are, as F. B. Myers uh, puts it possessed of the soul of a, of a priest. Uh, they don't look down on people that sin. There's nothing like having all of your seams exposed and all of your sins brought to the surface and you see yourselves as you really are that makes you much more tender toward other people, You're less judgmental, less critical uh, of others. As someone has put it, God takes the filthy rags of our life and he makes out of them a a white sheet of paper on which we can begin to write again. You may not be able to undo the physical effects. There may You may bear the, mar- the emotional marks of your sin to the end of your days here on earth, but God can begin to beautify you in a way that you never expected. Just as he promised, the walls of the city would be stable and beautiful. He can give you a dignity and a beauty that you could not otherwise have. And then thirdly, the text says that... Uh, Israel's sons will be taught by the Lord, and great will be your children's peace. 
And it's interesting to, to see how the, our Lord himself used that, that passage in John 6. He quotes this passage and he applies it to his disciples. And I believe that what Isaiah is saying and, and the understanding that we can have of this passage is that, that when we have gone through these awful ordeals and we have paid the price and uh, we have uh, confessed our sins, and God has begun to rebuild us from the inside out, that God will draw people to us that have gone through the same experience. I find that's true. Uh, you know that's true. I can see some of you nodding your heads up and down. Uh, there's something uncanny about it. People tend to ferret you out because they, they sense that, that you're, you understand. You know, you, you know what it's like to go through those experiences. You've paid the price. And uh, you've become a tender, softer person. Wisdom has softened your face. And you're much more approachable. And people will come to you and you can pass on to them the comfort with which God has, has comforted you. And finally... There is a wonderful tranquility that God can give to you, a peace of mind that transcends understanding. You may not be able to do anything about the results of your sin, and you certainly can't do anything about the acts themselves, their their past, but God can free you from guilt and humiliation and from shame and from those awful memories that plague you, that come in the middle of the night, those demons that uh, come to harass you from time to time that make you uh, regret deeply the, uh, the actions that you've, you've taken. And, and God will replace that with a sense of forgiveness and peace and tranquility. St. John of the Cross said that the marks of those who know God are tranquility, gentleness, and strength. And, and I see those three attributes here in this, in this chapter. There's a strength of character that God gives to those that have, that have endured these ordeals. And uh, there's a beauty of life uh, and character. There's a virtue that you could not otherwise have. And there is a peace and tranquility that's inexplicable. So I I, I would say, as a word of encouragement, that for those of you that have done the very worst, when when it's all over, when it's all over, God begins to undo it. And perhaps you will have to Live with the results, the physical results, the earthly results. But God can replace much of what's been lost. And in terms of your relationship to him and your growth in grace, you can go further than you've ever gone before. I'll show you one psalm, Psalm 32. Uh, you may just listen to it if you'd like, or you can follow along with me. This is another of David's penitential Psalms, and it struck me this last week as I was looking through Isaiah 54 that uh, Psalm 32 is a remarkable parallel. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. This was written after David's sin of adultery and murder and deceit, violence and cruelty. And uh, he had then turned from his sin, repented of it, Blessed is he, happy is he, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Happiness is being found out and knowing that you're forgiven. The finding out is so hard. Sometimes it's shouted from the housetops. But thank God that we're found out because buried sin always uh, destroys us. 
But sin that's uncovered and dealt with becomes an instrument that God uses to beautify us. Happy is the man whose sin the Lord doesn't count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. That is, the one who tries to cover up his sin, who's unwilling to face it, really has no sense of forgiveness or redemption. But when you when you face your sin and put it away, that sin is not reckoned against us. When I kept silent, David said, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David was deeply depressed when he tried to cover up his sin. He actually became physically ill. and Some of you know the, that, that experience yourself. But he says... Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave my sin. I remember when Nathan fingered David as the culprit. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against the unborn child. He had sinned against his family. He had sinned against the nation. But David saw clearly that his sin was against God and God alone. And uh, when he sinned, when he confessed his sin, he was forgiven. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time of finding. In other words, when we're found out, when our sin is disclosed, when the seams are open, when, when people see our unconverted parts, when, when it all comes out, uh, that's, a, that's a time when uh, we can find uh, deliverance. And surely when the mighty waters rise, they'll not reach him. You are my hiding place. You'll protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. We can sing. Even when we look back upon the disasters in our life, we can sing. And then David instructs us. It's like a finger coming out of the text and pointing straight at us. Very non very, very, very directive here. David says, I'm going I'm to teach you something. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you and watch over you. Don't be like the mule or the horse, which has no understanding, like, like I was. But must be controlled by bit and bridle, or, the, or they'll not come to you. Don't wait till God has to rein you in, he says. Don't wait until all the consequences of your sin come crashing down upon you. Face the sin. Many are the woes of the wicked, he says. But the Lord's unfailing love, that's our word, kessed, his commitment, surrounds the man or woman who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Upright does not mean blameless. It means that we've confessed our sin and we've accepted God's forgiveness. And when we have done that, then he will begin to rebuild our lives and to make of us a more beautiful thing than we ever thought possible. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, how good you are to take the very worst that we can do and uh, begin to undo it. We, uh, we want to learn from the past. We want, uh, we want to uncover all the deeds that uh, have blighted and, and darkened our lives. We want to deal with them honestly and openly before you and, and then ask you to begin to rebuild us in the ways that you see fit. And if it is possible to restore all the years that the locusts have eaten, we would ask for that. But if not, we know that one day when we stand before you, we'll be like you, perfected in every way. And we look forward to that day. And in the meantime, 
we want we want our souls to grow to be conformed in every way to your image so do your work and uh, whatever it takes lord to make us more like you in all that we do and say uh, we want you to do it and bring to us people that uh, have suffered as we have suffered and make it possible for us to give help to them along the way to comfort them with the comfort with which we have been comforted of you and grant to us that tranquility and peace and serenity that comes from knowing that what's past is past we do not have to live with the shame and the guilt the humiliation of the past but we are in you new creatures we thank you in Jesus name we pray Amen